how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Did you catch that? Uh, this is this is just one phrase from our teaching text today, and if you didn't catch it all, it's probably because there's a lot to digest using a collection of words that may not be connected to anything super meaningful for you. Blood, Christ, eternal spirit, purified, conscience, dead works. And we're in a message series in the New Testament book of Hebrews, and what we're looking at today is Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm coming into this with the assumption that it's that we're going to have to do a bit of work to appreciate the, the content of this section. And I so I can't overstate how helpful it'll be to actually have a hard copy Bible or something on your screen so you can have this whole thing in front of you. Uh, it also might be good to have something to write with because I'm hoping to provoke some deep thinking. And I know that for me, a, a notebook or a note on my phone or something uh, can help with that. So I began by reading for us Hebrews 9 verse 14, but let's back up. Let's start from verse one and go straight to the end, like all 28 verses. It's going to be a lot, uh, but hopefully you've, uh, uh, something that you've got in front of you can, can help you see this as I read it. So here's Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Uh, we're not going to have it on the screen. Maybe you just need it in your ears as the first audiences would have received it, but here we go. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared in the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all its sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect, not, for a will takes effect only at death, 
since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Whew. Like I said, there is a lot here, and maybe you disagree with me, but I actually really like that. Sometimes I think I think we believe that when it comes to the Bible, the, the complex parts are not relevant. So we read through this chapter or others and we go, yeah, I have no idea what's going on there. You, you, you miss me with all that intricate detail packaged in unfamiliar and confusing terms. And I've caught myself doing this repeatedly over the years. It's, it's like my relationship to the Bible goes, goes something like this. The importance of scripture is determined by my ability to understand it. And I get that. It's, it's why we have teachers. It's why we have mentors. But if we're using this type of perspective as an excuse not to think deeply, I believe this is a huge mistake. So I want to call us to a, a unique posture today. It's the posture of pondering. Let me save you uh, the, the Google search and really quickly explain. To ponder is to consider something deeply and thoroughly or to weigh carefully in the mind. Or, or as I like to view it, to sit with something. Not rushing past it, not placing it in the mess of multitasking. No, sitting and stewing on it, which, which sort of goes against what we often want from a church sermon, isn't it? Like, just, just give me my to-do list and let me get on with my day. But I want to offer a few things to ponder from Hebrews 9. And, and before I do, let me let me kind of give some, some things I'm thinking about to help us view pondering maybe the right way. First, pondering is something we already do with other things. Like, do you, do you realize that, that everybody is a nerd at something? We're all geeks, but not all at the same thing. Like, like for me, it's probably not an exaggeration to say that I know more about Star Wars than 99% of people who are going to hear me speak this message. And it's not that that really benefits me in life, but it's also probably true that you know 99% more of something than I do. Think of those of you who, who you know track sports stats or or know a lot about knitting or or math or or something. You get the idea. We can all be 
nerds at something, but I think we could also all be a bit more nerdy when it comes to our faith. The problem is that sustained theological reflection isn't always realistic when put against the other things that compete for our attention. And if it was, I think verses like these that we've read in Hebrews 9 with, with all this Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system references, if we, if we were able to do this, this might not feel like such uncharted territory. A second thing I want to I point out about pondering is that it's something we must do with theology. Because Hebrews 9, for example, it, it includes some significant content about God. We see that God has always wanted people to be with him. We see that God has always been particular about how people can be with him. And we see that the work of Christ expresses and satisfies both of these things. But to ponder theology, as Hebrews would have us do, is especially important then in a time where, where Christianity is being distorted and I think maybe even worse, where things like heresy, beliefs that are against the fundamental or original Christian essentials, is on the rise. I came across a study this past week uh, that was done in America. It was called the State of Theology Survey here this year in, in 2022. And one finding showed that 56% not of just people in general, 56% of Christians so that they believe that Jesus is not the only way to God. That would be a, a belief that goes against the, the original Christian essentials. And Hebrews 9, as we will see, actually has something to say to correct those 56% of, of Christians. So pondering is something we must do. Otherwise, we're just going to increasingly end up mirroring the world's ideas, some of which are deeply, deeply flawed. The third thing about pondering is that it's something we're all going to eventually do with theology. And this is especially true given the context of Hebrews. The author is encouraging Christians to stay faithful to Jesus, to continue trusting to the end. One scholar comments how life itself has a way of forcing us to deal with theology. That is what we believe sooner or later. The difficult experiences of life raise important questions about God and what he's up to. We especially must be focused in the deeper matters of the faith if we are to withstand the fire of persecution. Those who are shallow theologically manifest that superficiality in the face of strong challenges that oppose continued commitment to Christ. So like it or not, deep thinking is going to have to happen by us. So why, why not have it happen in, in some of the safest possible settings? Settings like church online or the worship gathering of God's people where the Holy Spirit is at work. And a, and a fourth thing I would say about pondering before we move on is that pondering is something that is often incomplete without action. We can't disconnect thinking with acting. We, we began by reading verse 14 today that described how the work of Jesus purifies us so that we can serve the living God. So deep thinking should always lead to right living and pondering is often incomplete on its own. So, so having said all this, I want to structure the remainder of this time by presenting us with four realities to ponder from Hebrews 9. Four things that really struck me, uh, and each one is tied to a question that I'm wrestling with, and I think you should too. So here's four things that we're going we're gonna to ponder and I'm going to get us to sit with. Number one, sin is serious. Number two, forgiveness means blood. Number three, Jesus isn't failing. And number four, communion is intense. I've chosen those words carefully based on how I've been, been looking at this passage. But let's go through these uh, one at a time. So first, 
ponder this. Sin is serious. Verses 1 to 10 in our text remind me that, that stretching thousands of years back, God has always desired for people to approach him. So these methods and religious practices that I hope you have in front of you in, in Hebrews 9, they're given because of how particular God is about this. God created covenants, which as Pastor Tim explained last week in the, in the previous part of this series, are these binding agreements of relationship. And we need our memories jogged with all this Old Testament stuff because it shows us how much God wants us, but also how much it takes to be with him. He's dangerously holy, and humanity is desperately sinful. But instead of unpacking all these ancient practices in these first reviews, I'm, I'm going to follow the lead of the author of Hebrews here and say, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We will come back to some of this in a moment, but I wonder what happens when we do ponder these things. Like it is, it's foreign for us to imagine. Like just notice some of the nouns here. Tent, lampstand, table, bread, curtain, altar, ark, urn, manna, staff, tablets, mercy seat, blood. Like, ugh, blood. Like that's in there too. Like look, if, if nothing else, we need to see all these references and realize that throughout the age of the old covenant, there was no direct access to God. And sin is the problem. It separates us from the creator of the universe, the one we were designed to enjoy life with. And sin has to be dealt with more fully than the old covenant could do for that to be possible, which means that there is something that can keep people from being with God. And, and maybe that's not a big deal to you, but it really should be. Like, I don't know if you caught this in, in, as we read it through it the first time, but Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Judgment. Like, like what that, is that really in the story? We, we've talked recently about this here at, at Central Heights, but the idea of judgment isn't something we like to think about, much less celebrate. It, we're, we're kind of embarrassed by this, honestly. We, 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 would, we want to suppress often what, what God says about these realities. There, there was a time recently, and, and maybe it's still the case, where, where church culture tried to correct how, how people see Christianity with, with, with good slogans. Slogans like, for too long the church has been known for what it's against. We need to show people what the church is for. And I, I, I do admire this. There, there's, there's absolutely a need for this for sure, but not at the expense of deleting certain truths. Like if we end up deleting the things that the church is against, that's actually a bit of an overcorrection, I think. I often hear the criticism that the church is too anti, that well, everything, uh, which leads to this idea that, that people, they like Jesus, they're okay with God, but not the church, not God's people. And sadly, I, I often have reasons to agree with this perspective, but, but the problem is, is that I think sometimes Jesus avoids criticism over things he actually does say. It's like we're quick to, to blame the church for things, but those are things that God actually stands behind. And the realities of sin and, and judgment are often some of those first things that try to get deleted. But being anti-sin isn't something that puts us at odds with Jesus. I mean, just scan this chapter again. I hope you have it in front of you. Like, like actually look at it and see how much it has to do 
with God's perspective on sin. If you delete sin from the story, there's no sense having some of these things like regulations for worship in verse 1 or, or ritual duties in 9 verse 6 or, or keep going. See how the reality of transgression against God impacts this extended discussion about offerings, sacrifices, washings, a, a time of reformation, redemption, purification, covenant, forgiveness, all these things. Sin is serious. Do we, do we ponder this? Do we sit with that reality? How serious is it? And, and maybe a connected question for me is, what things has God said that I often suppress? What, one scholar puts it this way, we would like for God, the Bible, and preachers to get up to date and call sin by some other name. But our nature does not change and our needs do not change with such mind games. Our consciences are still not cleansed and God does not change his requirements for holiness. Maybe, and, and, I, and I really shudder to think this, let, let alone say it, but, but here goes. Maybe we've gotten so comfortable with sin that we're kind of hoping God has as well. Maybe we, like, like some inconvenience we've just grown to live with in our personal lives, we're hoping that God can just get over it and learn to live with it too. But if that's the case, and if we don't see how serious sin actually is, that it needs to be dealt with, then we'll miss the second thing I believe Hebrews 9 causes us to ponder. Number two, forgiveness means blood. Chapter 9 is part of an extended contrast between the old way of the Jews and the new way of Christians, and it's here that some of this argument really gets fleshed out. Look, for example, at 9 verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So the old system, religion, human effort, none of this can solve the problem of sin. But go back to where we started in verse 14. What can solve it is the blood of Jesus. We can trust in the Son's sacrifice. It's worth reading again, so look at it again. Starting at verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Was this necessary? Sometimes we run into these debates like, did Jesus have to die? Absolutely. Jesus had to die for there to be a solution. And, and I know, like, we live, we live in a time where, where blood and sacrifice are, are concepts we often only interact with in mythology or, or horror fiction. But as uncomfortable or unfamiliar as the idea of, of a sacrifice of blood is for us today to affect something in the spiritual realm, there is a purity before the living God that we cannot possess without it. Sit with, sit with this thought and, and sit with it hearing these words as well from verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For our sins to be dealt with, forgiven, blood is required. Forgiveness means blood. And, and as I've sat with this, this week, two, two things have come to mind. First, if, if this is true, 
then it must grieve God to see us live like Jesus is just one of several options to get to him. Like if there, if there are other ways, as the 50% of, 56% of Christians from that survey said, then, then how messed up is this? Like it's, it's not as though Jesus came and just gave a blood donation. He's tortured brutally and nailed to a piece of wood for this. And Hebrews 9 challenges the idea that there's some other viable option to bank our lives on. Another thing I've, I've, that came to mind as I, as I sat with this uh, is I, I, you know, I, I had this, this question about my participation in the mission of Jesus right now. So we're, we're saved to serve the living God, as verse 14 says. And, and to use the language from one of our, our past churchwide events from this year, one of the things that should stir us to is a commitment to developing influence in the lives of those who don't know Jesus yet. The biblical language around people who are, who are in that place is dead in sin, or, or in other words, is lost. If blood really was the price and is the only option for humanity, then what, like, what more motivation do we need? So ponder this. Forgiveness means blood. And a connected question I've been asking is, am I found enough to care about how lost others are. This, this passage reminds us how desperately we need help. And thankfully, help is, is available. And I, that's why I love seeing verses like verse 15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A third thing for us to ponder. Jesus isn't failing. Hebrews has been highlighting how he's the perfect priest. He's the superior sacrifice worthy of our love and of our trust. But I know like in our sin and in the brokenness of our world, it's hard, it's hard to keep that motivation and keep these realities in mind. Hebrews 9 would have a C, like we would see in Hebrews 9.12, for example, that the place of his offering is superior. The blood of his offering is superior. The effect of his offering is superior. Jesus isn't failing, but I, I'm asking myself this question in connection to pondering that. Well, where do I feel like he's letting me down? Where do I feel like he's letting me down? As I've sat with this, I've realized that, that I have a difficulty trusting in things I cannot see. Sometimes trusting in Jesus doesn't leave me, doesn't leave us constantly with something to show for that trust. But I think this is one of the reasons we need Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 would have us see the, the work of Jesus as, as past, as present, and, and, and as future. The work of Jesus is presented three ways. Like, look at this progression. Uh, the past work in 9 verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Moving into the, the present, 9.24, for Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Moving into this future, this future work, 928, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here, here's why this encourages me. As I ponder this, first, it, it reminds me 
that God thinks about us when we are not thinking about him. Like if you're if you're if you're a parent, you you understand this. Like you you dwell on your kids, you dwell on the needs of your kids when they're not thinking at all about you. They're off doing their own thing. They're not thinking at all about but the things that you are carrying on their behalf. God thinks about you when you are not thinking about him. Jesus is appearing on your behalf. He's appearing on my behalf when I don't even realize I need him to, as verse 24 is talking about. Another reason this encourages me is, is second, because unlike the structures that I try to build my life on or, or the people I try to look up to who, who sometimes disappoint me, Jesus is beyond that. He isn't failing. I, I try to ponder this in real time, and, and I have permission to, to, to share this reference, so I will. I, I recently was processing with somebody that the shock they experienced when, when a longtime mentor of theirs significantly just disappointed them because of a secret sexual sin. Does, does, does it make a difference in moments like that that Jesus is never going to be exposed as sinful or exposed as a fraud or exposed as a failure? I think it does. And I also try to ponder this through the eyes of, of a Jewish audience whose closest comparison would have been these high priests that these verses are describing, who would go into these sections behind curtains to do their work of offering sacrifices. And can you imagine the apprehension and the suspense of wondering up until the moment the priest came back from out behind that curtain and reappeared, exiting that sacred space, like, did it work? Did, did, did they do it right? Did they remember all the rules? Is the reason they're taking so long the fact that God struck them dead because they did something messed up? And then that moment of, of reappearing would happen. And they'd know the offering, the sacrifice was accepted. This is what we're seeing here. Try to capture some of this. And in verse 28, Jesus did appear and he reappeared from the dead. And he will return again to reappear once more. And I know that maybe, like maybe for you it's hard to trust in him in, based on what's going on in your life right now. Like you can't see maybe what that your trust in God is accomplishing. But Jesus has worked. He is working and he will return. He's not failing now and he's not going to be failing ever. As another place says, in connection with the sacrifice of the son, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? But maybe where you're at right now is you, you need something tangible. You need, you need to see something. You need to feel something. You need to experience something. Well, ponder one more thing with me. Number four, communion is intense. The Lord's Supper, this, this, this practice we have this, that, we, that we do as Christians in community, I'm seeing it through the lens of this passage as something that is intense. Like if, if you're looking for something tangible, think about this. There has always been 
some sort of physical location and, and tangible expression uh, of these biblical realities. The Old Testament had this physical setup, the, the copies of the, the heavenly and future realities. Jesus then embodied the new covenant that's described. And communion now is a tangible expression. The gathered people who eat and, and drink it together is as well. And throughout this section of the book of Hebrews, the author has been referencing an ancient prophecy of comfort. Amidst a time where it looked like because of their rebellion, because of their sin against God, there was no hope. No hope individually, no hope as a nation. And it's in this that God spoke these words to the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. A new binding agreement of relationship. And how? what's this going to look like? For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do you, do you see? We're living on that side of history. What, what, what you're participating in in communion is that, that promised blessing. And as I've sat pondering this, I, I, wrote, I wrote this down. Isn't it amazing that we are participating not just in the new covenant, but in the final covenant? Hebrews 9 has used the language of, of once for all never to be improved upon. And, and, and I, I, we need to see how the book is built to this. Like in chapter 8, going back a bit, verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete is growing old, ready to vanish away. Moving into our text today, again, verse 14 and 15, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of what? Of a new covenant. The connection of the body and blood of Jesus in communion tangibly reminds us of these things. Like it's, it's no accident that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he used this language. Go, like just going to Luke for a second, this, this biography of Jesus, when he says these words, this, this cup that is poured out for you is what? The new covenant. In what? In my blood. Like, doesn't this add some intensity to our gratitude, to our thankfulness? Like, like don't just hear the classic Lord's Supper passage the same the next time you do communion. Like 1 Corinthians 11 is where we often go. Don't hear it the same. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This cup is the new covenant. We, we look back and we look forward in one move. So, so I'd invite you with all these things that we've been setting up to just sit with and to ponder, to ponder them longer beyond this time. And, and the next time you're gathered in community for the Lord's Supper, you know, think of it through even, even further. But for right now, just take a moment. Maybe, maybe what you need to consider is, is what it took to forgive your iniquity, what it took to remember your sin no more, to make this new covenant of relationship. Maybe asking this, what do I need to talk to Jesus about right now? Seriously, like don't, don't just sit 
with all this information. Sit with him. <laughs>